Hey guys, this is Cobain the Christian. Today we're going to be doing part three of a series that I began over a year ago on the historicity of the Book of Mormon. My intention in this video series, which is open-ended in nature, is to provide a high-level analysis not only of the Book of Mormon, but an analysis of the top tier of Book of Mormon apologetics. As I mentioned in my previous videos in this series, what is often not recognized outside of those who are especially interested in this field is that Mormon apologetics has acquired some degree of genuine sophistication and expertise in relevant fields. Now, I am firmly convinced that these arguments at the end of the day fail to demonstrate what they purport to demonstrate. Nevertheless, the arguments not only deserve to be engaged with, but need to be engaged with if we are to provide Latter-day Saints with an option uh, upon leaving other than naturalism, other than atheism. Uh, it's best if it's traditional Christians who are doing this kind of work rather than atheists and naturalists. Uh, before getting into the substance of today's video, I want to mention my Patreon. If you are in a financially good place and enjoy these videos, your Patreon contributions are instrumental in facilitating a continued flow of high-quality content on a regular basis. And I'm excited to announce that this coming week we will have an interview with New Testament textual critic James Snap. The full interview will be available to patrons at a premium level or above. You can also do it through YouTube membership if you would prefer, uh, though uh, half will be available to the general YouTube audience. Okay, so where we left off in the previous discussion of the Book of Mormon was the point that contrary to those who say that the data has converged with the Book of Mormon text over time because, in their view, the Book of Mormon has not changed, only the data has changed. In reality, in a significant way, the Book of Mormon has changed. Because even though the literal word of the text has remained basically what it was in 1830, small changes here and there, but basically what it was in 1830, the most significant change in the content of the Book of Mormon is what it is taken to claim. And my point there was that what the Book of Mormon was taken or is taken to claim has not been constructed in isolation from the archaeological data. Rather, Mesoamerican archaeology has been, in a way, fed into the text, such that the interpreter of the Book of Mormon, who is well acquainted with that discipline, will see in their mind's eye all sorts of Mesoamericana, but uh, will not actually derive those features from the text. So we discussed how the straightforward prima facie reading of the Book of Mormon is when the Lehite party arrives in the Americas. They arrive in a land which has almost no living inhabitants with the exception of a few Jaredites. The narration that it then provides is of the foundation of two distinct civilizations, the Lamanites, and the Nephites. However, because of the data coming out of Mesoamerican archaeology, 
The Book of Mormon today has been taken to claim not that these two civilizations of Near Eastern extraction were founded from uh, ex nihilo, uh, from no pre-existing cultural uh, ancestors other than the Near Eastern ones. Instead, it is taken to claim that there was a cultural revolution of sorts within a pre-existing Mesoamerican civilization, such that the technological sophistication increases, economic activity increases, and so forth. And that is then taken to be a convergence with the arrival of the Nephite and Lamanite civilizations. But this cannot be taken to be a convergence in the empirically meaningful sense of that word. That is, a convergence which indicates the historicity of the Book of Mormon text. Instead, it is a convergence only in the sense that the data of ancient Mesoamerica are being used as a lens through which the text is itself is reinterpreted. And because you've fed Mesoamerican archaeology into the text, it's unsurprising that you can then read it out of the text. And so today, what I want to do is assess textual arguments for indigenous outsiders and uh, a limited geography. For those who are not familiar, the idea of the limited geography is that the Book of Mormon does not describe events that took place all across North and South America. Instead, it describes events that took place within a very um, restricted geographical range. Related to that is the idea that the Book of Mormon de uh, describes a civilization which integrates with and uh, has contact with pre-existing and highly sophisticated indigenous civilizations. So if one is to argue that the archaeological data indicate the historicity of the Book of Mormon, one needs to defend the independence of the Book of Mormon text from that archaeological data. Otherwise, it's just circular reasoning. You read out of it what you read into it. One needs to demonstrate that based on the textual data alone, one can infer the presence of these indigenous outsiders. Moreover, one must always keep in mind that one is dealing with two competing explanatory paradigms. That is, on the one hand, there is the theory of the Book of Mormon produced uh, out of Joseph Smith's immediate background, out of the culture of upstate New York uh, in the early 19th century. Or one is dealing with an, a text anciently engraved on gold plates produced by uh, Mesoamericans of roughly Near Eastern extra extraction with significant indigenous influence. Obviously, there are other models, but the point here is that what one is always doing is engaging in a comparative analysis. Without, If we lose sight of the fact that we're dealing with a comparative analysis, which explanatory model unifies the data in a parsimonious way, then we are liable to make all sorts of logical mistakes. So I'm going to call attention again and again to the nature of the argument that we are having, because I think that is where Mormon apologetics really and fundamentally fails. So what are the textual arguments for indigenous outsiders? To serve as an argument for historicity, we've gotten into this a bit, um, historicity cannot be uh, an interpretive assumption. Okay, so uh, I'm about to get into 
the implications of that for the arguments for indigenous outsiders. So John Sorensen, who is one of the leading Book of Mormon scholars, um, uh, uh, he's a very sophisticated guy. He is an eminent Mesoamericanist, um, and uh, he has spent a career essentially arguing for a Book of Mormon that is of Mesoamerican uh, origin. He has an article which is very, very influential on I think it's called When uh, Lehi Arrived, uh, Did He Find Others There? And he purports to provide a series of textual indicators that uh, indigenous outsiders are present in the text, but under the surface. Now, this is where the comparative analysis becomes especially significant, because we're not, uh, if the text is fiction, then one has no reason to assume that the civilizations described therein should function in a fundamentally realistic way. One's reading of these texts might be justified, but they cannot be an argument for historicity. They are justified when they are predicated on certain pre-existing assumptions which govern the way in which one reads the text. So if an argument for indigenous outsiders depends on the uh, principle that these civilizations must behave in a realistic way, then one might have a significant piece of commentary when one is working within the LDS community, where that's a shared assumption, but it will not function as an argument for historicity. So what does this practically entail? The first point is rapid Lehite population growth. So if you look at the numbers which are presented in the Book of Mormon and the statements about the relative size of the Nephite and Lamanite populations, it simply does not make any sense describing an historical group of people who are descended from these very small founding families. So you have, I believe, under 20 people arriving in the Americas, if indeed there were no indi indigenous outsiders. And very shortly afterwards, you have apparently robust civilizations who are building cities, multiple cities, and uh, uh, who have populations on par with biblical population numbers. And this is presented as an argument for the presence of indigenous outsiders in the text. But this is where the notion of comparative analysis is so, so significant. Because what is the explanatory model which the non-believer in Mormonism is setting forth? The explanatory model is not that it describes a civilization which uh, is in the heartland of North America. This is one of those inter-LDS debates. Rather, it is that the text does not describe historical civilizations at all, but is shaped not by historical events and real historical persons, but rather is shaped by especially the King James Bible and other tropes that were present in Joseph Smith's environment. So if that is the explanatory model, which is the alternative to the LDS one, this isn't that difficult to explain at all. Why do Lehite populations behave in such an unrealistic way? Because they are unrealistic because this is not an historical text. 
This is one of those instances where LDS apologists seem to, in my view, shoot themselves in the foot because on the one hand, they insist that Joseph Smith was relatively uneducated, that he wasn't familiar with the scholarly views on ancient America in his day. But on the other hand, when they want to suggest that Joseph Smith was writing in a way contrary to what his background would indicate, they generally do not go to popular views of ancient America, but instead refer to prevailing academic views of ancient America. So if Joseph Smith indeed was a man of little formal education, and I think he was, he was, uh, I think, a very gifted and intelligent person, but clearly he did lack most formal education, then we shouldn't expect him, if he's producing fiction, to write in a way which would reflect formal education. Things like population growth, those are subtle features of a text, which it's not surprising that he did not uh, develop in a realistic way. And I'm not coming down on how exactly the text was produced. I have a complicated view. I, th I think that Smith probably held the Book of Mormon to be an historical text. How he squared that circle was something maybe we can talk about another time, but that's just what the historical evidence seems to indicate for me. So if one assumes historicity going in, if that is a controlling principle, then indeed the Book of Mormon is inexplicable apart from the presence of indigenous outsiders. But if historicity is not an assumption shared uh, by multiple interpreters, but is rather a hypothesis subject to uh, historical analysis and critique, then this is no argument for the presence of indigenous outsiders at all. Because what's going on is that a non-real text is behaving in an unrealistic way. And the fact that the population cannot be accounted for without indigenous outsiders, but the text is silent where we would expect it to not be silent on the presence of indigenous outsiders is one of these contradictions or tensions within the text, which I think lends weight to the non-historical model for Book of Mormon origins. Travel distances and times. This is another point that basically follows the same pattern that I just sketched out. If you look at the travel distances or the travel times that are presented in the Book of Mormon, uh, uh, the time it takes for a person to reach uh, a point B having started at point A, indeed these travel distances and times do not make much sense if uh, we are dealing with a hemispheric geography, that is, if we're dealing with people who are traversing from North to South America. But if historicity is not a assumption, if we're testing the hypothesis of historicity, then again, why should we expect or why should we demand that a fictional text behave in totally realistic ways? If indeed we roll with the idea that Joseph Smith, if he was producing a text, would not be expected to produce a highly historical, credible one. I think the fact that a hemispheric geography of the Book of Mormon has such an advantage on a prima facie level and the travel times recorded in the Book of Mormon are inconsistent with that is one of these deep inconsistencies, which again, lends weight to the non-historical model of Book of Mormon origins. 
The text at face value seems to present a hemispheric model. It describes a land northward and a land southward and a narrow neck of land which mediates between the two. Now that does not mean that a hemispheric geography is necessarily what was going on. It just means that that is a very sound prima facie interpretation of what the text is presenting to us. And if we do not assume historicity, the fact that travel distances and times are inconsistent with what an actual hemispheric history would reflect, do not undermine the idea that in the mind's eye of the author, a hemispheric model seems to be uh, governing the production of the text. Mulekite loss of language. This is another thing which basically follows the pattern of what I've just laid out for you. And this is one of these arguments that I'm going to return to again and again, which is that the flaw in LDS scholarly apologetics is not generally a mistake about Mesoamerican archaeology. Rather, it is a logical mistake that turns on a mis- interpretation of the structure of the argument being had. It turns on a misconstruction of how exactly we are to evaluate the model of historicity in the first place. So for those who are not familiar, the Mulekites, that's not a word that's used in the Book of Mormon. It's a, it's a word that's coined by uh, its audience, by its readers. Uh, Mulek is said to be a son of the last king of Judah at the time of the exile. So we know from the scriptures, Second Kings, that his two sons had their eyes put out, or uh, his two sons were slaughtered, and then the king had his eyes put out. So that, that 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 was the last thing that he saw. That's at the end of the Book of Kings. Well, according to the Book of Mormon, he had another son who made a journey under divine direction, or perhaps simply because he himself was escaping. I don't recall if. Uh, if one of the other ideas is specified. But the notion is that he, uh, with a group of people, sailed to the Americas, founded a culture, a civilization, uh, encountered the, the Jaredites. Uh, won't get into what that means right now, but I've talked about that in the previous videos in this series. Uh, and the Nephites, under King Messiah, later came across this Mulekite people, this other civilization of Israelite extraction. But they didn't bring the scriptures with them, so they forgot a lot of what made them culturally distinct. But when the Nephites arrived, when they encountered the descendants of Mulek and his people, the civilization was formally united into one people group. And we're told that the descendants of Mulek had lost their language. Now, Brant Gardner, who's a, a, a very talented uh, LDS uh, scholar uh, and commentator from a Mesoamerican point of view, uh, Gardner points out that the narrative simply does not make sense if we take the common speech of the Mulekites to be Hebrew and if we take the time span between the Mulekites arriving in the, or in the Americas and uh, uh, King Messiah encountering the Mulekites, they would not have lost their language to such a degree that they would be rendered unintelligible within that time span. 
And so Gardner argues that what happened was that the Nephites had used another Mesoamerican language group as their common tongue, with Hebrew being a merely literary or scriptural language, and the Mulekites had used a different Mesoamerican language type as their common speech, such that when they encountered each other, they couldn't understand each other. Now, I have a couple problems with that. First, that's not what the text says. It says that they lost their language. Second, that their loss of their language fits very snugly with a motif that runs through the Book of Mormon about the idea of a sacred tongue. You see this especially in the Jaredites. Uh, the idea of, in the Jaredite narrative, the pure speech of Adam is very, very significant. And indeed, throughout Joseph Smith's life, he's very, very interested in the idea of language. That's why he's so interested in the notion of translation. He's very, very interested in the way that meaning is contained within writing, and he's very, very interested in how this all relates or doesn't relate to the original language of Adam. So Brigham Young in 18, when uh, in the early years of Mormonism, Brigham Young spoke in tongues, and Joseph Smith pronounced it an example of the pure speech of Adam. Uh, in Missouri, uh, Joseph Smith uh, says that there is a altar Adam um, Adam and Diamon, uh, which is named in the pure tongue of Adam, and that's where Adam will gather the human family uh, near the end of this age. So the idea of them losing their language and of that being indicative of a spiritual decay fits very snugly within this broader literary motif. And the argument for this being something about a distinct set of Mesoamerican languages turns entirely, in terms of the justification of this reading, turns entirely on the historical implausibility of the Hebrew language decaying so as to become unintelligible to other Hebrew speakers that quickly. But again, why do we think that the text must behave in realistic ways if the hypothesis under consideration is that it is not, in fact, an historically real text? I think in relation to Gardner, this is especially significant because Gardner calls a, a great deal of attention to the relationship of ancient languages to one another in Mesoamerica and uh, the geographical distribution of their spread. Uh, he calls great attention to that in relation to his reconstruction of how these various Book of Mormon peoples moved throughout Central America um, on his model of geography. And he argues that there is a strong convergence between the, the historical data and the Book of Mormon text. But a convergence is only a convergence if you're not feeding data from one source into the other source. It ceases to be an independent convergence because you're using one of the things that's supposed to be converging with another of the things, you're using it to uh, construct the way that you're reading what source B is actually saying. So as an apologetic argument, I think it's very, very problematic. And again, why does the text behave in an unrealistic way? Because it is not, in fact, an historically real text. The rise of idolatry. This is another of these same things. It's argued by various uh, uh, LDS scholars and apologists that the worship of idols that is narrated in the Book of Mormon uh, makes little sense unless there are uh, a pre-existing, uh, unless there is a pre-existing indigenous culture from which uh, syncretism is coming. But again, 
What's the alternative to historicity? The alternative to historicity is that the principal source for the narrative from which the themes are coming is the biblical story. And there is a perfectly reasonable explanation in terms of this paradigm for why idolatry is being narrated, because it is a major theme throughout the Old Testament. So, of course, a biblically-based narrative of a Hebrew civilization in the Americas would appeal to idolatry as a major challenge for the people. This does not function in any way uh, as an independent argument for the presence of indigenous outsiders. So what do these data imply? Well, as regards the question at hand, as regards historicity, it simply doesn't imply much of anything at all. Because in each case, the unique consistency of the particular data with the hypothesis of indigenous outsiders uh, in an historical Book of Mormon depends on the interpretive par uh, assumption that the text must describe civilizations which behave in realistic ways. So if Mormons are talking to other Mormons where they share an assumption, I acknowledge they can use these arguments as arguments for indigenous outsiders. But when they are doing so in the context of an apologetic debate about whether the Book of Mormon is actually historical, then I think they run into some very serious problems. And as I've said in this video, the inconsistency of the narratives requiring indigenous outsiders to make sense without giving evidence of the existence of these indigenous outsiders is one of the deep contradictions which indicates the text is not historical. So the hypothesis under consideration is that the Book of Mormon is basically a lineage history. It's a history of a specific people group in a highly limited geography. And the question is always, if that is the situation, what would we expect a text produced in that context to look like? And that's not a hypothetical question. That is a extremely important point. That is not a hypothetical question. Because the analogy that is often used to explain the kind of thing the Book of Mormon is, is in fact the history of ancient Israel. The kingdoms of Israel and Judah were quite small relative to the surrounding kingdoms, and especially when the imperial, uh, uh, when the great empires of the Near East came on the scene. So we're dealing with a limited geography in the histories of Israel and Judah, and we're dealing with uh, a specific lineage within a much broader historical context. And yet, read through Judges, 1st, 2nd Kings, Samuel, Chronicles. What does the text describe? Well, we have many specific named people groups non-Israelite named people groups whose names are presented as players in engaging with Israel, who is the main subject. We have specific named deities who Israel is led astray to worship. We have deities like Baal. We have, uh, uh, we have deities like Chemosh, who was a national god of the Moabites. So, 
we're dealing with a limited geography and a limited subject in terms of the lineages under discussion in the Hebrew Bible. Nevertheless, we have all sorts of explicit evidence for the presence of other people groups so that the text would not just be unintelligible in terms of the undercurrent of what is going on, like population sizes and so forth, but it would be unintelligible simply on the explicit level because it names other nations, it names uh, false deities. The Book of Mormon is supposed to be written in an analogous context. It's supposed to be written in a limited geography about a roughly Israelite people group who are attracted to idols. It's supposed to be on this model written in the larger context of non-Israelite people groups who have their own national histories unrelated to the national history of the Nephites and the Lamanites. Nevertheless, we never once see an explicit reference to a non-Lehite people group. We never once have a name of a non-Israelite deity. And we never have a Book of Mormon personal name which is of Mesoamerican linguistic extraction. Instead, the personal names of Book of Mormon characters, I should say they do uh, make certain arguments um, for Mesoamerican names in the Jaredite narrative, so I just want to note that. But the interesting thing there is, again and again, you'll notice that the, their best cases consistently come from one-syllable names, like Kish or Lib. Well, naturally, the one-syllable names would have the highest probability of a chance convergence with a Mesoamerican uh, uh, language. But according to the prevailing model of Book of Mormon culture, at least as it is articulated by Brant Gardner in his book, uh, Traditions of the Fathers of Book of Mormonist History, uh, in that prevailing model, the dominant culture and language is indigenous to Central America. And yet these very same scholars and apologists will argue for the probability of Book of Mormon historicity based on Book of Mormon personal names, which they argue are verified from outside, um, outside the Book of Mormon in the Near East and are not biblical names. But that is in very strong tension with the idea that there's all these indigenous peoples and that their common speech rather than their liter literary language is um, a Mesoamerican language. Where are the Mesoamerican personal names? Where are the personal names which are explained in terms of a Mesoamerican language? What about theophoric names? That is a personal name which has the name of a deity within it. So Jeremiah is a theophoric name for the God of Israel. Uh, in the Tetragrammaton. Yah is one part of the Tetragrammaton, so Jeremiah, Isaiah, the same thing. Israel is a theophoric name with the name of uh, El, El Elyon, God Most High, um, the God of the Patriarchs. Uh, it's a theophoric name. Well, if you have all of these um, uh, descendants of Lehi who have parents, at least, who worshipped specific Mesoamerican idols, where are the theophoric 
names corresponding to Mesoamerican deities. You just don't have them. And my point in this video, again, is not about the particulars of this or that argument. I want to make this absolutely clear. It is not about the particulars of this or that argument. It is rather about the structure of reasoning that leads to the failure in a systemic way of Book of Mormon apologetics writ large. Many of these men are, are, are brilliant. Um, They're eminent scholars in their own fields, but I think their arguments fail because of a fundamental failure to recognize the kind of process which allows us to differentiate between the hypotheses of a non-historical Book of Mormon and an historical Book of Mormon. So thank you for uh, listening. If you enjoy these kinds of videos, uh, uh, make sure to like, subscribe, and make sure to turn the bell on so that you get notified of all my new videos. Uh, and if you're in a financially good situation, I would very much appreciate it if you would uh, make a contribution through my Patreon. But thank you everyone who, who just watches. Uh, I, I very much enjoy doing this.